Hello, everybody. Welcome to Nova Southeastern University's South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program podcast, also known as SFGWEP. Today, we're going to talk about reducing hospital admissions and readmissions. We're here to educate, encourage, enhance our knowledge and skills, and promote all those amazing healthcare professionals working with the elderly, including caregivers and interprofessional teams. My name is Naushira Pandya, and I'm professor and chair of the Department of Geriatrics at Kiran C. Patel College of Osteopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University, as well as the project director for South Florida Geriatrics Workforce Enhancement Program. In today's episode, we'll talk about a topic important to everybody, reducing unnecessary hospitalizations in older people, with our subject matter expert, Dr. Joseph Auslander. Dr. Auslander is Professor of Geriatric Medicine and Senior Advisor to the Dean for Geriatrics at the Schmidt College of Medicine and Courtesy Professor of Nursing in the Christine Lynn College of Nursing. He earned his medical degree at Johns Hopkins Hospital and did his internal medicine residency at Case Western University and completed his Geriatric Medicine Fellowship at UCLA. He served as professor at the UCLA School of Medicine and director for the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at Emory University. Dr. Auslander is past president of the American Geriatric Society and has been a senior editor for the Society's Journal since 1991 and currently serves as editor-in-chief. Since coming to FAU in 2013 to develop geriatrics education and research, he has brought over $7 million in federal and private grant funding and served in key leadership roles for the past eight years, namely as department chair, residency program director, and senior associate dean. Dr. Auslander serves on the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Nursing Home Five Star Expert Panel and the Federal VA Gerontology and Geriatrics Advisory Committee. He has published over 250 articles, book chapters, and is co-author of Essentials of Clinical Geriatrics and an editor of two textbooks in geriatrics, Principles of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology and Nursing Home Care. He has ex lectured extensively throughout the states as well as in Europe, Israel, Japan, Australia, and Singapore. Good afternoon, Dr. Auslander. It's such a pleasure yeah. to welcome you to our SFWEP podcast, and I wanted to thank you for your time and expertise. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Can we start by you telling us why this topic is so important to you? Well, uh, I think that the topic of reducing unnecessary hospitalizations embodies all of uh, geriatrics. I think it's not only important to me, I it's important to patients, it's important to families, it's important to everyone because unnecessary hospitalizations not, uh, cause a lot of emotional and physical distress for patients and families, and they cause complications, hospital-related complications for older people and both the hospitalization and the complications are expensive. The ones that are unnecessary, I mean, we're essentially spending money on putting people in the hospital when they don't need to be there and then and having them get all the distress and discomfort and complications. So they shouldn't go to the hospital in the first place. 
what kind of examples can you give us, you know, clinical conditions that account for acute hospital admissions and readmissions? And specifically when you say they shouldn't go to the hospital in the first place, what might be treated at home or in their usual care setting? Well, a lot of the work I've done has been in nursing home patients and residents. Examples in that setting might include someone who's not eating and drinking well for, for several days, and people don't recognize that and, and communicate it, and they become dehydrated. So that's a problem with recognition. A second type of issue is when someone has developed a cough and some shortness of breath and a low-grade fever, but they're alert, they're eating, Mm-hmm. and their blood pressure and their heart rate is stable, they're sent to the emergency department for perhaps an x-ray, and they end up getting admitted when they could have been managed uh, safely uh, without uh, sending them to the hospital. So uh, go ahead. What you're alluding to, it sounds like, is timely and early detection uh, when somebody is beginning to decline that might prevent a hospitalization. That's that's one critical strategy. And in, in order to be able to do that, people who are caring for older people need to know them and know what their life normal is. One of the things that happens, especially in nursing home studies, and especially with the short staffing that's occurred with the pandemic, is there's a shortage of staff in the nursing home, and the staff that's there isn't, may not be constant, have the same assignments to the same nursing home residents or patients. And they, the people that are caring for them don't know them. So they may not be able to detect a change. Sooner. Understood. I also feel in my own experience that um, some, when our, some of our older patients go to the hospital, medicine the way it's practiced right now is almost done by organ system, and they seem to get an, possibly an excessive number of referrals uh, within uh, the hospital system to see various subspecialists. And then follow-up becomes complicated. Those referrals themselves may generate additional medications, additional tests. And I'm always concerned about what happens to all of that when the patient is discharged. How much is necessary and how much is truly, you know, followed up? Yeah, I, I agree with you. There are a lot of things that can be managed by a primary care clinician or a hospitalist. But for a variety of reasons, older people who have multiple chronic problems, diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, arthritis, anemia, they do get consultations from specialists, which can be helpful. But as you said, that can uh, lead to a number of diagnostic tests, a number of new medications, and follow-up visits, and and some of those follow-up visits are simply not necessary. Somebody goes to the hospital and is treated for pneumonia. They don't need to go back and see an infectious disease specialist. 
I think the primary care clinicians in a nursing home can tell if they're responding appropriately rather than sending a 90-year-old person, a frail, vulnerable person, out to someone's office for a checkup that could be done in the facility. And that raises the problem of logistics, of transportation, communication of infection and information to various specialists, you know, what access do they have to uh, information that they need from the actual care setting or the post-acute setting. I think it all becomes very complicated. Well, I think you're raising one of the most critical issues, and that is, like a lot of things in life, uh, the unnecessary hospitalization are often due to poor communication. So there's poor communi- there can be poor communication between staff in a nursing home. So for example, a nursing assistant who might pro- provide 90% of the hands-on care may recognize the change, but doesn't communicate it effectively to a nurse. And if they do, a nurse may not communicate that change effectively to a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Um, and then if someone is sent to the hospital, to the emergency department for a test, as you just said, the transfer of information that's so critical in taking good care of a person doesn't often occur efficiently and effectively. So what ends up happening is people take the default position and they admit them to the hospital. So a lot of it has to do with verbal and written communication. And so importantly, I think hospital clinicians don't really know the pre-morbid condition of that patient and what are they at their best? And, you know, what should they be aiming for? Exactly. So, for example... You heard from emergency department physicians and nurses. Often they'll be sent someone from a nursing home or assisted living facility with altered mental status. But there's no description of their usual mental status. That's correct. And I'm not sure how you can make a judgment about whether the person has a significant change in mental status or when they're better if you don't know in relatively simple clinical terms what they were like to begin with. That's the complicated communication. Besides the improving communication, what else do you think are effective strategies to actually prevent unnecessary hospital admissions and readmissions? I think that two or, or three things, I would say. The first is that taking care of older people is a team sport. Your team has to understand what you're trying to do to provide high-quality care and to do it in the most appropriate setting that's best for the patient and the family. If everyone isn't on board with that and they're not articulating that to the patient and family, they won't trust you and they'll, they'll be more prone to send you to the hospital. Second issue is that the leadership of whatever a program is, if 
home care, assisted living, a nursing home has to be supported. And I understand that's very difficult now because of the pandemic and the shortage of staff. But unless the leadership is supportive, things won't happen. A third thing is there has to be a good trusting relationship between the hospital and facilities outside the hospital so that they know each other as people and they trust each other. And the final thing I think is, is, is probably one of the, there are two other things. One, one, one is money. Things often come down to money. So that in the regular Medicare fee-for-service system, it's possible for the nursing home and for the hospital to benefit from a hospitalization. So the finances are going in potentially in the wrong way, financial incentives. In a value-based care program, managed care or a special needs program, it's capitated so that there's a financial disincentive to do too much care and to put people in the hospital when it's not necessary. A hospitalization of someone, the kind of person we're talking about, is is $15,000, a $15,000 price tag. And for some conditions, it can be managed for a few hundred dollars. So Medicare, save that money and use it to share with providers to further improve care. And the final thing is that I think nursing homes and other healthcare settings for older people respond to regulation. So it's very important to work with the regulators on creating quality measures that make sense and that are fair. So that if you're going to penalize facilities or programs for having not high enough quality care, there's objective, measurable, and fair things you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's very tricky to do that. I mean, but, I've often been in the situation of uh, taking care of a nursing home patient who actually does need to be in the hospital, and the nursing home administration might be leery because they feel it reflects uh, poorly on their you know, readmission numbers. But there are some situations where there is no argument that somebody needs to be in the hospital. That's uh, a very difficult issue because whenever you institute a program where you're trying to improve care and do what we're trying to do, reduce emergency department visits and hospitalizations, reduce complications, and less distress for the patient and the family, and save money, that's kind of a (laughs) no-brainer. But whenever you do that, you can have unintended consequences. And one of those consequences could be that facilities don't send someone to the hospital who should be sent. Yes, and that again comes down to communication and trust uh, and knowledge of your patients. Right, and knowledge of what you're capable of doing safely and effectively outside of the hospital setting. That's correct. So, Dr. Auslander, what are some of the tools to help us achieve these goals? Well, one of the things we haven't discussed is that people who get into the situation of going in and out of the hospital or in and out of the emergency department frequently 
are often at the end of life. And really, it's in their best interest not to go to the hospital, not to be in an emergency department, getting what are potentially uncomfortable tests and procedures done, and being admitted to the hospital and getting hospital-related complications. So one of the tools we have is advanced care planning, advanced care planning discussion, and directives that, that specify that if I'm very sick and at the end of life and going to the hospital is going to be more uncomfortable for me than staying where I am, then I don't want to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So one of the sets of tools we have are, are, are advanced care planning tools and written advanced directives. So that we know what matters to the, to the patient. Uh, there are tools that have been produced by the American Medical Directors Association that are, are quite good, um, that are communication tools and protocols for management of common conditions in, uh, outside of the hospital. And as, as well as communication tools for the nurses. There a program that I've been involved in developing called Interact Interventions to Reduce Acute Care Transfers has a whole set of tools that relate to communication and transfer of information and early detection of changes in condition and proper assessment of changes in condition. And those are available in paper and pencil and to some extent in an electronic health record format. And there are uh, other programs that have been developed using elements of the American Medical Director Association tools and Interact tools and other approaches that are publicly available. So I think that people ought to be trying to use some of those tools that are already available and not reinventing the wheel. Yeah, I find that um, probably the first time you meet a patient, uh, let's say in a long-term care setting, that's probably the most important visit and uh, where you can have a realistic discussion of where they are in their disease trajectory, what's likely to happen, because sometimes those conversations have not happened and families are often surprised to learn how sick patients are and that these recurrent hospitalizations are part of a really downward trajectory that's really indicating that the patient might be nearing the end of their life. I think trajectory is very important. So someone that's making decisions at the end of life to limit care and the discomfort that can come with that is not an epiphany. It may take one or two experiences where someone at the end of life goes to an emergency department, gets admitted to the hospital, and suffers the discomfort and complications. And then the next time it happens, the next time they get sick, they or their caregiver, their family, their designated proxy decision maker recognizes that that's not been their best interest and that they can be treated and kept more comfortable without going to the hospital. These are not easy conversations sometimes. I tend to be very upfront 
and straightforward about it. And I've always said to people when they when they ask me what I think they should do, they're they're either confused, which they may be, or they don't want to be made to feel guilty to let someone go. And I always tell them, even though it's paternalistic, I say, let me tell you something. If this were the situation with my mother, this is what I would do. And I've yes. done that, both yeah. my mother and father, and it's what I'd want for myself. And it may be not going to the hospital, just being kept comfortable, or it may be going to the hospital. Depends on the situation. But I think those conversations, they don't occur as often or as well as they could. Yes, I often find that in the clinic, I try to have those conversations too when I see somebody who's not doing well with multiple medical problems. I have a patient who I've been doing some home visits recently, and um, his family is adamant they do not want him hospitalized. But now that he's clearly, uh, you know, declining, uh, they called me, and really the best advice I could give them was connect them with hospice, but also tell them what they could do to make his time more meaningful, you know, with his family and with the caregivers that they have around him. And that seemed to provide some comfort to them. They did not want to be stranded in the last days, you know, or weeks of his life. So uh, where can the audience find more resources on this topic? Well, I think the American Medical Directors Association has uh, the tools and the protocols available. Uh, it can be found on their website. The interact tools that I've been involved with are available free for use on Interact website, and they're free for clinical and educational use. And there is a license agreement that's needed to, to, mm-hmm. to put Interact into software. I see. But that, people can obtain them. There are many others from other organizations that have produced similar tools and strategies. Thank you. That's, that's really useful information. And uh, I'd really like to thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise with our audience. It's been a real pleasure having you in this discussion today. So please stay tuned for upcoming topics from our renowned subject matter experts.